Welcome to Coffee with Curtis, your home for quality business conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the podcast. Joining me this time is Derek Fox. Derek is the founder of Midsale Research, a market and competitor research company. Derek shares that at Midsale Research, we specialize in unlocking the secrets of our clients, customers, and competitors, providing them with the tools they need to make confident, and informed business decisions. We'll learn more about that in a moment. Derek has also held various sales and business development leadership roles, as well as a seven-year tenure at, personally my favorite, luxury brand, Ralph Lauren, as part of the business development team. Derek, welcome to the show. Awesome, thanks for having me today. Well, I'm excited that we're able to talk about an area that I think is much overlooked, actually. Um, you know, we go into companies all the time um, to look at their sales, their marketing, but actually there is a big gaping hole around market research, competitor analysis, and this is through the ranks. This is from big companies through to small companies, startups, and so really excited to hear what an expert in the space has to say today. Uh, just so we can give our listeners um, a bit of a sense of, of Derek Fox, tell us what we need to know about you. Um, what's your background? Uh, what drives you? Um, and uh, then we'll dive into some more meaty topics. Awesome. I, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me today. So, uh, yeah, so my name is Derek. And um, I'm the founder of Midsale Research. We're a market research firm specializing in delivering reports um, to all different sized businesses so they can make informed business decisions, help um, revolutionize their marketing strategies, sales strategies, and business development strategies. Um, before um, I founded this company, um, I had a long tenure with, uh, with Ralph Lauren on part of their business development team, managing uh, most of the luxury brands on the East Coast. Um, so phenomenal growth in that role. Um, but then decided to move over to the, um, the startup world. Um, I was a part of three different international startups um, with their go-to-market teams here in the U.S. I was the head of uh, sales and marketing for two of those, um, where we saw phenomenal growth and a part of the go-to-market team for the third one. Um, the three different um, startups were on a variety of different um, backgrounds and different industries from design to fashion to technology to artificial intelligence. And what really led me to start Mid-Sale Research was I saw there was a big gaping hole in the market um, for market research. Uh, a lot of companies, startups, mature companies were making a lot of business decisions, sales decisions, marketing decisions um, based off of trial and error. Um, now doing adequate research, or if they did research, the research was outdated because they didn't have proper cadences. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Again, I'm happy to be here. And um, yeah, thank you. Amazing. What a great background. And I, I think we'll kick off with um, why you find this such a fascinating area. I think it'd be good to get under the hood of, of you, you know, you, why you, why you decided to devote some of your life to this particular area. It's such an interesting space. And as we said, it's sort of overlooked. There are some big players in the market, um, but there are, you know, which aren't always accessible to most of the market. So it'd be great to understand what's, what's driving your interest in this space. Yeah, so I think that's important. So I think market research, it's, it's an interesting area because um, almost everyone you talk to on business, business development teams, marketing teams, C-level suites, sales teams, they all say there's a need for market research, but little do they do about it, right? Um, so now the big companies are able to afford market research because market research tends to be very expensive. So, you know, you have the big consulting firms and some big um, 
market research firms out there catering to them. But for the average company, small, medium-sized business, businesses that are doing, you know, under 50 million um, annual revenue, even up to 100 million revenue revenue, um, don't really explore market research. Or when they do, they do it um, either without a proper cadence or they do it um, just to check off the box. So they'll build strategies around maybe a year-long strategy. They'll build personas. They'll build teams around what they quote-unquote call market research, which they'll do in two or three days. And then they had the thought process of let's do trial and error, trial and error, and trial and error. And I saw there was a really big gap in the markets to deliver fantastic research reports to mid-sized businesses and small and medium-sized businesses so they could kind of take a step away from doing a lot of that trial and error so they can really make some um, informed decisions and really know where the market's been for the past 10 years, where the market trend is going in the next 10 years, what their competitors are and are not doing, and what are customers and, and prospects in the market saying about them, you know, through interviews and really getting their really good in-depth um, answers um, that they as a company can't really get because you'll get a lot of bias um, there. So, so that's what really um, helped me found the company. I'm really passionate about research in both my professional life and also in my personal life, you know, just loving to know um, everything and anything about what interests me. So cool. I love that. It's, uh, it's uh, sort of like the detective in you, Derek. Detective yep. Derek. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what's interesting, and I think back to my time when I was the VP sales at a startup and, um, you know, this was, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, we 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 entered the market. We thought that there was a problem in the sector. Uh, we sort of partly validated the need for the for the product that we were we were building and selling, but we had conducted zero market research, and only through the journey years later did we start to see ah, they live in our competitive landscape, and oh, they're pricing it that way. And mm -hmm. there are these other big beasts in the sector who we had no idea even existed, who were part competitor, part complementary, could be a partner, could even acquire us. And we'd done none of that work. I mean, it was embarrassing, actually. There was one big, particularly big company in the space who we'd never heard of. And when someone mentioned mm -hmm. the name, like, no, I never heard of them. And it's, and it's, and, and had we known, had we known some of these important landscape issues within the competitive space, actually, we would have made very, very different decisions along the way. And it may have shortened our time, A, to market, B, how we were, you know, growing. And then ultimately the acquisition, which happened, you know, seven, eight years later, you know, thank you, still very, very nice, but we could have made that shorter. Why, why do you think it is such an overlooked area, particularly in the, I would say, startup space where, you know, you're, you're trying to be quick to market. You think you've got an idea. What's your thoughts on that, Derek? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I speak to a lot of founders and a lot of CEOs of startups. And I think, you know, the general consensus is let's keep our head down and let's stick to our mission. Who cares what the market's doing? Who cares what our competitors doing? If we could provide a great product, um, add value, we'll see success. And, you know, unfortunately, that's only partially the equation. Right. Um, you know, yes, you need to deliver a fantastic product at great value, great customer service, but um, but not really understanding, you know, what your customers want and need is a really big portion that you're missing. You're missing. Um, you need it for product enhancements. Um, you need it for growth mindsets. You need it for a ton of different areas. And I think this this mindset of like, let's just do what we're good at. Let's just 
continue getting better um, and not worry about the competition because that's just noise is not the right mindset to have, um, in my opinion. I think that probably comes from a little bit of uh, the sports world. You know, I can imagine, you know, athletes, 100 meter sprint, you know, don't think about who else is on the line. Just do your thing and you'll win. It doesn't transfer into, I think, particularly the B2B space. I know within B2C, I remember even as a teenager and at university, I would go to market research evenings and pick up, you know, 50 pounds, 100 pounds to go and sit for two hours and be asked questions in mm -hmm. a group. Um, you know, how honest was I in those sessions? I don't know, but I was picking up my money. So there's definitely a flaw there. But um, I think you're right. It's that mentality of head down, we'll just get on with it. And but actually, the, the competitive research that you provide is, is game changing, and particularly from a customer standpoint as well. For sure. I mean, building off that sports reference, I mean, yeah, you're right. Athletes do very much have that same mindset as like founders. Like, let me just get, keep on getting better and better. But if you look at their coaching staff, they're constantly studying tape of their competitors, what their competitors are doing, what they're, where they're, where there's gaps, um, how they can beat them. And that's how companies should really be, be, um, positioning the market too. I mean, there's so many gaps of service in, in the competitors and there's so much you can learn from positive and negative reviews and, and, and um, feedback from your competitors, customers, um, that could just save you year, like literally years of development and, and growth opportunity. It's, it's amazing. I love that. You're 100% you're correct. I often think of uh, myself and my business partner, Simon, who you know, we often you know sit in and listen to demos and sales calls and meetings with our clients and then feedback almost like the sports commentators back in the studio and give mm -hmm. analysis on all oh, you should have played it this way and you know hit, hit hit it this way next time but actually what you're saying is and I, I love this and I'm a big tennis fan I've just watched Wimbledon over the last two weeks people are watching the competitors game to know how to attack and win and if you're not doing that in your business then you're leaving a huge opportunity for your own personal and company growth on the table. Exactly, exactly. Cool, now tell us a little bit more about your methodology without giving all of the secret sauce away. <laughs> what is what is your, um, I guess, strategic approach to handling um, a new project that comes your way? Yeah, so you know we're at the inter interesting intersection of trying to deliver uh, fantastic reports um, that don't break the bank and that make it accessible to a lot of businesses. You know, like I said before, you know, anyone can del deliver a fantastic report um, with a $100,000 budget, right? And that's not the business we're in. We're, we're trying to deliver reports with, with very small budgets. And we really take both a quantitative and qualitative approach um, to this. Um, and we do this by, you know, understanding what the data is, understanding what market it, what the markets are operating in, um, analyzing statistics, um, through credible sources. We have fantastic relationships with consulting agencies that we can leverage um, their data pools. And then really digging deep into qualitative um, research through interviews, polls, surveys, um, guerrilla interviews, and really understanding what moves the needle. Um, we also work very much into competitor intelligence where we really dive deep into not only what your competitors are doing, what are their services? Where are the product gaps from yours and others? But also, what are their digital marketing services? How are they acquiring customers? You know, is it through YouTube? Do you want to compete with them in certain ways? Do you want to try to have alternative strategies? And really having your your finger to the pulse on what's 
what the market is doing and how best can you attack it? Because kind of just going in blind saying, hey, listen, we're going to create a marketing strategy um, to acquire customers and then have no insights on how your competitors are acquiring their customers um, is, is a great recipe to spend a lot of unnecessary money. <laughs> you mentioned a word there that I've never heard before, guerrilla interviews. What are they? Yeah, guerrilla interviews, it's, it's what we do when a company has a very small budgets and we need to get a lot of qualitative um, research very quickly um, from a large sample pool. So what we do is we, and, and mind you, it's very different than deep interviews. Deep interviews, you have a one-on-one -on -one interview. You could ask someone, you know, 50 questions and, and 50 follow-up questions and really, really dig deep. Um, but for this grill interview, it's something very much at a high level research. So if you really need to get three to five questions answered from a large market, what we do is we set up individuals in various key tourist places um, throughout the country. Um, high traffic tourist places, let's say like a Times Square in New York, you know, in San Francisco, Chicago, Austin, you know, different places. And they start polling people on the streets. Um, wow. And they start asking three to five questions. And there, for a very small budget, a company could gain two, three, four thousand um, pieces of feedback wow. um, in just in just a week. Um, it's it's a very strategic way to get feedback, mind you, at a high level, right? Because you can't ask twenty questions on someone on the street, but you can ask them three to five questions very quickly and get um, overall census. And what's great is if you do it in tourist areas, you don't you you get kind of this world view, right? Imagine spending spending 20 hours in Times Square asking people <laughs> questions, you get people from all over the world, from all economic backgrounds, from all racial backgrounds, and you get a really holistic um, worldview versus, you know, maybe just standing in, you know, a small town and asking a bunch of people, right? It's, it's, um, it's a thing that we de deploy pretty often. Um, it's not our only research method, but it's something that we do to help um, backup studies or when some companies are on a, um, you know, on a bu very budget conscious. It's interesting. I wonder whether, I guess all people are different. I'm very much a gut feeling type of person, but um, I wonder whether those studies are a little bit more truthful because it's an instant reaction mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe a deep thought out strategic answer if you've got more time. It's a question. I don't know if you find that. It's true. I mean, what we do different, we do different ways of research, right? So the deep interviews, you get really thought out and precise answers. You know, you see the people thinking, they think through it. They sometimes change their answers when you start asking them more and more. These are very spontaneous answers, which, are, which tend to be very much gut feelings, which is very much how people um, react to situations versus focus groups. For example, people think focus groups are fantastic. And we host them and we do a great job at hosting them. But the challenge is, you know, about 30% of the focus groups that you host, there's usually one predominant voice in that focus group that kind of takes a lead in that focus group. And then people start kind of following that one person. And then you start getting biased answers where you kind of have this dominant voice. So you have to be a very skilled um, kind of narrator in these groups to really kind of take out all that bias and really get down to like, you know, meaningful uh, data. I think what's interesting now that you've uh, you know we're we're talking, I'm thinking they're coming to to the surface of you know all those companies out there, those big big brands that disappeared, you know BlackBerry, Blockbuster, you know they they probably had no competitive research really taking place that 
showed the true threat of what was coming up behind them and would ultimately kill them. I know, I know, I know we spoke uh, offline about a Barnes and Noble story. I, I think you wanted to share that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, a, a lot of the big brands, they do market research, um, but they don't necessarily do great trend research and competitor research, like you mentioned. And when they do competitor, when we look at competitor research, uh, we kind of break up competitors in three tiers. You know, your tier one competitor is like, the person that, or the company that's selling the exact same product as you, right? And you're going for them. You're either, you're competing with them for either value, price, customer service, uh, you know, products, um, et cetera, right? And then tier, tier two and tier three are not the same product, but they're competing for the same buyer's dollars. And that's really where these big companies kind of fail is the tier two and tier three competitive research. And like you mentioned, Barnes and Nobles is a great example. You know, Barnes and Nobles in its heyday was, you know, a fantastic bookseller. You know, I still go to a Barnes and Nobles if I could find one, but they were so hell bent on their market and competitor research on just focusing on the tier one competitors, which was uh, Borders. And I think it was Books a Million um, at the time. And you know what they did? They did a great job. Like they, they probably beat, they did beat Borders and Books a Million, and they really um, saw phenomenal growth in that regard. But they really forgot about that tier two competitor, which was Amazon. And many people think, say, hey, you know, Amazon, you know, they put so many businesses out of, um, out of business. But in its heyday, Amazon was just a bookseller, right? They were just selling books. And they were that tier two competitor. And Barnes & Noble didn't really look at them as a competitor because they're saying, hey, they're selling books, but they're doing it completely different than us. People don't buy books that way. They buy books our way. Um, and they really kind of sniff their nose at them. You know, fast forward, you know, 20 years, we know how that story pans out. And, you know, I think a lot of companies kind of miss the needle. Um, you know, so many good ones, Kodak, Blackberry, like you mentioned, um, you know, really miss the needle on those second and third tier competitor research and also trend research as well. Yeah, that's interesting on the trends because it's uh, it's having that future proof uh, vision of what's coming through the pipe, you know, five years, even 10 years. Um, you know, we're seeing at the moment, obviously, the rise of you know AI, which has obviously been around for quite a while. It just feels that it's very much in everybody's hands now uh, with, you know, chat GPT. But um, how do you see AI taking a role in the work that you do? It's interesting, you know, it, it's something that I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out every day. I think, you know, AI is really evolving um, on a day-to-day -day basis as far as like the accessibility to, to us, the end users, you know, to everyday people um, or, or small companies. Um, so I'm really trying to understand how it's going to start evolving in market research spaces. You know, it's probably gonna help assist us um, in writing some reports or at least proofreading some reports. You know, I, I've used some fantastic AI services that have become really good editors. Um, but as far as like digging deep into research, there's no real AI that I'm aware of at least right now that can really um, take the place of really qualitative interviews, you know, polls, surveys, and then really in-depth research um, just, you know, through statistics and data. Um, but who's to know how that's going to change? You know, I think, you know, it, it's, it's an evolving um, technology that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my finger to the pulse. I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> it's definitely exciting. I mean, I'm seeing it, um, you know, the role of AI and, you know, ChatGPT coming through in the work that things are done in sales and marketing and um, people are really embracing it. And, uh, you know, it's saving time. It's adding a level of sophistication that didn't exist before. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very excited about that. 
Um, yeah. But just uh, let me put it, Ash. Go ahead. If you're if you're gonna go out and do your competitor or market research, don't rely on ChatGPT. Um, I mean, you could use it maybe as a jumping off point, right? Like that, it's ChatGPT is a fantastic jumping off point. But one, you know, ChatGPT's um, knowledge um, ends at a certain date. And also you have to reference everything that it's correct. It's like saying, hey, I'm going to do a fantastic research project and I'm only going to use Wikipedia. Um, how, you know, how credible is all those sources? You know, for all you know, 80% can be extremely credible, but that 20% um, might yeah. not be. So when you're giving business decisions to companies, you have to make sure that it's ironclad and that you're citing every single source um, and every source that you are citing is credible. Um, so I would say, hey, listen, if you're going to do some research, ChatGPT is a fantastic jumping off point, but it's not the end all be all. Like it's just a place to start and then it's going to take you in all different directions from there. Yeah, I, can, I concur with that. And certainly ChatGPT also doesn't really give opinion. Um, it'll give you yep. a, some, it'll give you some information and, and, you know, high, you know, some pretty good research, but, um, it doesn't really give you the, the outcomes and the recommendations and the, the, the conclusive, you know, thought process that, you know, a full, a full project would, uh, would obviously deliver. Um, talk to us about some of the success stories, um, you know, of projects that you've worked in. Obviously, you know, don't have to name names, but, um, what, what's, what's the outcome when, competitive research or market research goes really well. Yeah. So a story that comes to mind, um, you know, a company that we were just working with recently, um, they were an importer and exporter here based in the U S and they were bringing in sunflower oil, sunflower seed oil, um, most typically known uh, for like cooking and everything. Right. And th before we met them, um, they, they thought to themselves is we have two ways to sell this. It's either through retail channels, you know, us to bottle it, um, throw our brands on there and sell through retail channels or to us to sell to like, um, potato chip manufacturers. And I said, you know, there, you know, we didn't do the research, like, you know, where, where's the real levels of opportunity? I mean, those might be the right answers, but wouldn't you want to do the quantitative and qualitative research first, to understand if those are the right answers before you spend the next year on that strategy. So what we did is we did a fantastic research report. We were really digging deep into it. And what turned out was. You know, although retail might be interesting, it's very expensive. Um, food manufacturers are very interesting, but they have fantastic suppliers um, and you need to compete with those suppliers um, on price and on commitment that you can never stop the, um, the supply chain coming through, um, which they were, you know, weren't able to do. So we found a completely new on top market and that was the cosmetic industry, um, hair and beauty supplies, um, soaps, shampoos, um, makeup, um, all different cosmetics. And we really changed their entire business strategy to say, Hey, listen, we're not selling this as a, um, a food product anymore. This is now going to be manufactured in all different types of beauty supplies. And they've wow. seen some great success, um, changing their entire strategy around, um, to focus specifically on, um, on the cosmetics and, and health and beauty care industry. That's so interesting. Wow. So we're going to have uh, topical sunflower cream that will be, uh, you know, rubbing into our rubbing into our bodies. Yeah. I mean, oil is a big, you know, I didn't know this before we started the research, but oil is actually a big um, you know, ingredient in a lot of healthcare um, products, um, all different types of oil. So um, so after we did the research, it made sense for them and it was a no brainer. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I guess the, you know, you always see you know oil based or um, yep. you know we're we're working with a um, 
a functional mushroom company at the moment who have taken these mushrooms and put them in a topical cream for pain relief that chiropractors are using. And uh, again, they 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 did a, a very interesting market research of topical creams on the market for pain relief. And you know, it was it was the ability to have done that research and gain that intelligence that gave them the ability to say, right, we're honing in actually on mushrooms rather than CBD products which already mm. existed on the market. And they've gone on, you know, wildfire. They're really doing very, very well. So it's 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 even if even if you can't necessarily afford it at the first stage, you have to do that digging, it sounds like. And then once you can spend money on people like you, then obviously you can see game changing business results and and also not only results in a positive, but the opportunity cost of going in the wrong direction, like this this oil company, catastrophic potentially. Yep, yep, exactly. And I think you know it's important to set research up on a on a specific cadence, right? You know, you know, I, I meet companies, and you know, I speak to founders, and like you know, we did our research ten years ago, or we did our research five <laughs> years ago, and I'm like. Uh, so you did your research before COVID happened, right? Like the world's different now, right? Like you can't, you know, research needs to be set up on a, on a specific cadence, right? And every industry is different, right? So if you're selling, you know, fashion products or consumer good products, you know, you have to be, you have to set up the cadence, you know, Fast. quite often. It could be even quarterly. It could be two times a year, but you have to really have your, your finger on the pulse on what consumers are saying why, and what preferences are and trends are. If you're more in the B2B space, in other spaces and you're maybe not a startup but you're but you're a more of a mature company you can maybe do it once a year once every two years um whatever it might be you know we could set up cadences but there needs to be a regular cadence where you're where you're testing the markets understanding what your competitors are doing understanding what your customers preferences are and how the market is um is evolving i think is important i think uh you know we're seeing at the moment in the in the tech space the battle between twitter and threads um, you know this 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 ultimate jewel of competitors. Um, there's a, there's a company actually here in Israel that we work we worked with uh, called Watchful.ai. Actually, you should check them out. They're an incredible uh, AI based technology that can monitor different platforms and understand whether the big beasts in technology are piloting specific features within their app under the radar. So often Facebook or Twitter or whoever it might be, they'll try a new feature in a particular region for a certain set of users. Mm -hmm. um, and for them, that's obviously critical because they're developing out feature sets and a roadmap. But for their competitors, they don't know about it necessarily. It's not a, you know, if they're testing it just in, you know, Rio, uh, just for those users, which they can do, um, then you know, they're, they're getting that intelligence themselves, but this company Watchful basically can alert other people, other companies into what's coming down the feature set line in these other companies. It's genius, genius, genius company. I mean, that's such a fantastic tool to have. I mean, for any company, just to understand, you know, um, what your competitor is doing before they actually do it. I mean, that's, that's incredibly powerful. When, when do you think it's too much? You know, we spoke about obviously being, um, you know, really geared up intelligently when it comes to the market, when it comes to competitive research. But at some point, you do need to make decisions. You need to head in a direction yourself. Um, so when when can it be too much? I mean, I often think about uh, the old line of, um, you know, if you only listen to what your customers say, you definitely would be out of business. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think of the amount of times that clients requested certain features within the SaaS product we were selling 
they didn't come up that often from other customers. If we'd always jumped at the mercy of a customer, you know, it would never have worked. So I guess mm-hmm. it's a balance. But when is too much too much? <laughs> yeah, it's it's an important question. So I think that's where it really comes to, you know, understand what, what is research, right? It's the three things. It's the market, it's the competitor, and it's the customer. So I think it's very much, you know, setting up a cadence, right? Because you don't want to only just focus on what your competitors are doing day in and day out. Um, because then at, at some point it is too much, right? It, it is noise. So first it's setting up a cadence on on how often should you be, you know, kind of checking the pulse on the market and on your competitors. But with that being said, um, you should always be checking the pulse on your customers and what your customers' preferences are. The trick is to understand how to download all that information and really be able to extract it. You know, I talk to tons of sales and marketing teams and they say, oh, our customers need so-and-so feature. And then you dig a little bit deeper. You're like, okay, so how many customers are saying it? Oh no, it was just the last customer I spoke to. Um, (laughs) And then you're like, all right, well, like, you know, you spoke to 20 customers this week and only the last one you spoke to said we need a certain feature. So do we want to act on it? Let's, Let's weigh out the pros and cons. But I think it's really starting to understand how to take that qualitative information from your customers and really be able to extract it into actionable um, measures, right? You know, if, if you talk to 100 customers and 90 of them are requesting a certain feature, yeah, you better act on that feature. But if you poll 100 customers and only two of them are acting on it, um, but those two might have been the last people you spoke to, that's why your sales team is like, we need a certain feature because it happens to be the last person you spoke to, um, you probably don't need to act on that. So I think it is a fine balance. Um, but more so than a fine balance is really understanding how to interpret um, though that kind of feedback um, for your business, right? Because you're right, like every customer um, request enhancement problem is not to mean like, hey, let's change our business model um, and let's change our product right away. But, um, but you have to have a threshold um, internally and, and when that threshold can be 50%, 60%, 70% and saying how to quantify that data, um, we'll then turn it into very easy business decisions. So Derek, final question for those companies that are thinking about going down the route of obviously developing out their research suite across, you know, market, customer and uh, competitor. Um, I would imagine, having worked in a fair few companies, that getting stakeholder agreement at different levels for this type of work can be a challenge. Um, what's your advice to, you know, leadership who are wanting to go down this route of how best to sell in a project like this within their organization? So, so it is tough. I mean, you know, especially with budgets constraints right now, you know, typically the, the buying committees for this are typically C-level suites, um, financial professionals, um, business development professionals, and marketing professionals. And it's really weighing out the the cost not to act on information and not to have this information um, and kind of making informed um, decisions, right? Just on trial and error. Um, so you really need to weigh out those informations. The truth is, you know, a lot of companies have the abilities to do research themselves um, if they prioritize it, right? Um, so they could do market research. They could do competitor research if they, if they had, were properly trained how to do it and how to take that information. Um, the customer research is where it gets tricky. And that's where I advise a lot of companies to to outsource that. Because if you're a representative of a Ralph Lauren and you want to, you know, you want to target the markets and you're a representative of Ralph Lauren and you speak to a thousand people, people are going to speak to a representative um, more positively than a third party buy, unbiased um, 
you know, narrator, right? So I, you know, I say that, you know, you really need to demonstrate that the cost of not doing this kind of research um, far exceeds the cost to actually do the research. And, you know, to be honest, you know, it is a bit of an uphill battle um, because, you know, a lot of brands, they want to, they, they want to spend money on things that are, that are hot, right? Like social media or, or ad buying or video production, which are great, but without the research, you don't know where the best ROI will be. Um, so that's why I always advise companies, let's, let's stay, let's use this as a jumping off point to inform all your, all your other decisions from there. I think it's, I mean, it's amazing that it is, uh, it's so obvious, but yet it's not done. You know, I think if we, you know, we've used the sports analogy in politics, you know, oppo research, understanding, you know, the, the intelligence around the other party or candidate, um, you know, obviously particularly dirty and disgusting at the moment and no one really wants to be involved in it, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it just makes sense. So um, Derek, for those people that want to be in touch with you, what's the best way for them to, to find you? Yeah, um, that's great. So, um, so I'm, I'm pretty, um, pretty vocal on uh, LinkedIn. You can search for me, Derek Fox, um, on LinkedIn. Um, our website is midsaleresearch.com. You can reach out to us through midsaleresearch.com, or you can reach out to me directly as well at uh, Derek at midsaleresearch.com. And um, I'll love to chat with you either on uh, working on a project together or help um, you on best practices on how to do your own project. Well, thanks for that offer, Derek. And it was great having you on the program and uh, giving us some insights into a really important area that uh, I'm actually going to sharpen my uh, tool set on within our own business. So uh, thanks for the tips and tricks and uh, insightful strategy. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Curtis. I hope you enjoyed it. Please follow or subscribe to get notified when I release future episodes.